wait, watch, weep, experience resurrection. And a subtitle today might be, can you linger a little longer, even though it hurts? But Mary stayed and stood weeping outside the tomb. She wept and she bent down to look into the tomb another time. Church family, some of you have heard this story or lived this story because you've been here for some time. It's part of RCHP lore. But today I tell it again in full because God's word invited it to be told again. The Easter text brought it to mind and so if you don't mind, I'll tell it in full today because the one who was raised up on Easter Day has something to say about resurrections today and something to say about how waiting and watching and weeping sometimes brings on the way of new life. Friends, late March 2009, which feels like forever ago, kind of is now, one of my best friends in the world, one of our dearest friends, was being deported. We had, as a church, suffered mightily since mid-January 2009 as Harry Pongamanen was taken one morning from just outside their then apartment in Avenel, New Jersey and put into the Elizabeth Detention Center. I talked to Harry today before I shared this sermon, by the way, just to make sure you're aware I was going to bring this up. We'd collectively gone through shock and then grief and moved to action as a church. We'd sung outside the doors of that dehumanizing place. We'd broken bread and drank from the cup, celebrating the Lord's Supper outside that warehouse filled with Harry and some 400 other beloved people made in the image of God. For 68 days, we had, as a church, faithfully visited every day. We'd lingered and waited and wept and watched. And then despite having a case pending before the immigration courts, despite all advocacy efforts, conversations with Congress members, despite our mantra to keep families together, which we were saying long before it was cool, he'd been taken to the airport early morning in March, late March. I happened to be awake very early that day, already having breakfast with a church member at 5 a.m. at Duncan's. He was moving that morning to South Dakota, and Fred was going to be sent off with coffee and a prayer. My phone rang, and it was Harry. Pastor, thanks for trying so hard, and thank the church, but they're sending me away this morning. My coffee and prayer turned into a speedy trip to Newark Liberty. Fred dropped me at the door, and I ran through the terminal looking for Harry's plane. I was looking for planes to Indonesia, but luckily Harry called to say they were sending him to Tacoma, Washington first. The plane was at the far gate of a different terminal. I hustled to the SkyTrain. Upon reaching the correct terminal, I literally ran with this clerical shirt on, probably the same one, I don't get new clothes very often, like some out-of-the-mind pastor through the airport. By the time I got to the plane, there was no sign of Harry. There were still some people boarding, and I asked an agent there, did immigration just put someone on this plane? Yes, there's two agents and two passengers with them. They're already on. I need to get on that airplane, my church members on that airplane, being deported from his wife and kids. We've been praying for Harry. Our church just baptized one of his little girls. We committed to them. I need to let him know we'll care for them and we'll do our best for him. I begged and pleaded and the woman behind the counter said, FAA rules say absolutely no. To be honest, I'm glad like, that that's her go-to. With tears in my eyes, I was ready to walk away. To start the long journey home totally deflated and defeated. Harry was gone. 
He'd gone down that tunnel and onto the plane, and his life and the life of his family had been permanently and totally and violently disrupted. How to face Yana and Jocelyn and Krista. How to tell Pastor Stephanie and our kids. How to tell all of you. All this was flashing through my mind. I was so ready to walk away. But something or someone made me stay. It felt cruel to stay, to watch that plane make its confident ascent into the air as if it was off to some good purpose, when really it was an instrument of state-sanctioned violence. Now in tears, I told the woman behind the counter, I'm just going to stand over here by the window and pray for Harry and his family and pray that God may somehow intervene. I stood there sobbing internally mostly, looking at the plane on the tarmac, crying out desperately to God. I took breaks in my prayers to call his attorney and to call Yana. But mostly I just tried to pray and stay calm. I probably stood there for 10 minutes, but it felt like forever. And suddenly a, a middle-aged woman in a United Airlines uniform who'd watched my interaction at the desk hustled over to me. She had blazing red hair, and she came and said, Father, and I didn't correct her. I quickly, I quickly assessed from the hair and the accent that I was being addressed by a devoted Irish Catholic woman that did not like the way a priest was being treated here at the airport. Father, they did the same to my brother years back. It's just awful. Now you go get on that plane and pray for that man. I'll call for you to get off when it's time to leave. I didn't, make, I didn't ask any questions. I just made sort of praying hands at her and then traveled in the direction where her open palm was now outstretched. And I walked right down the hallway in that tunnel and onto the airplane for which I had no ticket other than the grace of God and the intercession of that angel. The tomb, I mean, I mean the plane, was packed. But as I got on, it didn't take long for Harry to spot me. He was all the way in the back, but he lifted his body up from the seat so I could see him over the crowd. I walked the length of the plane, wanting to shout to travelers, do you know you're witnessing a family-breaking governmental action? But out of respect for the red-haired angel who got me on, I said not a word. Two officers, looking stunned, got up from their seats beside Harry and allowed me to sit beside him, and we prayed. We cried and we prayed. Harry committed to staying strong and to try to not slip into depression and despair. And I committed to go the distance for two more solid weeks of endless advocacy. If it doesn't work by then, Harry, we'll talk to see if you can stand waiting longer in detention or if we need to start thinking about how to safely resettle you in Indonesia as you and Yana make decisions for your family's future and the future of your children. Friends, those of you who've been here a long time know the rest of the story. The media coverage critical of ICE breaking up a loving family and the counterpoint of a pastor getting on an airplane for the sake of love and because of the love of a church helped new President Obama appointees in Washington have the public pressure to undo the decision to deport Harry. And two and a half weeks later, just after Easter, there was a flight back to here and a great celebration in this place. In time, Harry's return had far-reaching consequences for literally hundreds of other Indonesian families throughout the northeast of this country and really throughout the country as a whole, as lessons learned from that close call with deportation resulted in us demanding and winning new protections for this persecuted group before the end of 2009. Friends, I tend to be uncomfortable sharing stories from the pulpit that have me doing something right as if I'm some sort of hero. But I share this story today because it is the one that kept playing in my mind as I read the text from John 20 this whole week. This is a story of a time when I lingered and wept and watched and prayed. 
And somehow by staying in it, by staying in the uncomfortable space, the forces of God work themselves out in remarkable ways far beyond anything I could have thought of. By choosing to linger in a sad and hard place, I was present to be able to participate in a set of miraculous circumstances that God was carrying out. That's what I believe God wants us to hear this morning, this Easter morning. Linger, watch, weep, and pray. It's Resurrection Day. I've often wondered what would have happened if I'd walked away that day. I hope God would have gotten the same result some other way, but who, who am I to say? By lingering, God made me part of the narrative of God's resurrecting power that day. Friends, what tombs does God want you to linger at? Weeping and waiting and watching a little longer. What tombs does God want you to linger at? Mary Magdalene was distraught, totally distraught that morning. She could not comprehend how quickly things had turned. Just days earlier, he had been called teacher and Messiah, and he'd lived as if salvation was at hand. Disciples from Galilee, women and men, had headed into Jerusalem, the most important city in their land, and with a parade and a band, they sang their way toward the temple victoriously. Blessed is the Christ who comes in the name of God. They'd sung that psalm before, but this time they were singing it about Jesus. But now, just like that, he'd been handed over and hated over and then crucified. He died a horrible death. And now, beyond that, there wasn't even respect for his dead body. It had vanished. Mary came early to the tomb. And in this version of the story, there's no need to bring spices. She'd seen Joseph of Arimathea drench the body in 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe on Friday, just before sundown. She hustled to the garden just as soon as the gate opened on Sunday morn, and she was coming to mourn. But when she arrived, the stone was already rolled away. He wasn't there. And she did the first thing that came to her mind. She turned around and ran right back. She ran full steam back to where she'd come from. She ran into the city to find Jesus' disciples and finding Peter and the one other, and one other called the Beloved. The, she said the only thing she could comprehend, which was they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I do not know where they've laid him. She quickly assessed and come up with the only scenario that seemed plausible. They, the soldiers, the temple hierarchy, someone responsible for the death, had desecrated the body or removed it so it wouldn't be a shrine to encourage other sedition. They had removed it. We then get this story of a strange foot race with Peter and another disciple called the Beloved. The Beloved was fleet of foot, apparently. He got to the tomb first. He peered in. Peter showed up next, but he went straight in, not afraid. He wanted to check the evidence, and together they found the linen burial uh, wrappings. They found that, that head cloth neatly folded. Whoever took the body stripped him of everything. How cruel. There's an often misconstrued line in this text from my reading where the unnamed beloved disciple saw and believed. Some interpret this to suggest he believed Jesus to be resurrected, but it doesn't say that. The very next line says he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must be raised from the dead. I think both disciples, Peter and the beloved, believed with their eyes, believed what their eyes were confirming, which was the same thing Mary believed and shared with them at the beginning of the passage. Someone has taken away the Lord and laid him somewhere. They did not know where. And believing that, the disciples returned to their home. That is, the disciples named Peter and the beloved disciple returned home. They had seen enough. 
their spirits had been crushed on Friday. They felt even worse now. They didn't need to stick around for any more desecration. Have you ever felt that way? Enough is enough. I've been wounded. I understand all I want to understand, and I'm, I'm leaving this now. This hurts too much. And friends, there are times to go, to leave, to run away, most definitely. But that's another sermon for another day. Mary stayed. She didn't know why. She didn't have some further plan or insight about what might have happened. She didn't stay because anything about the situation looked to be changing. She stayed because something told her it wasn't time to leave yet. There were tears to shed. There were prayers to be prayed. There was a tomb to be near. That was enough. I want to know how long she stood there weeping. I imagine it was a good long time. And have you ever had a time like that? Have you had a time when something has ended and you want to walk away, but you can't for some reason? Are you keeping yourself there or is God? It's not clear, but you stay near, near to the tomb. The memorial service has ended, the burial has ended, and you linger after the crowds have left the cemetery. It hurts so bad to be there, but somehow it's the only place to be. Waiting, weeping, watching. For what? Not sure. But you've got to be there. And you go back there regularly. Or how about another kind of death? You've had a difficult and drawn-out argument with someone you love. And there are no words to move through the dispute. It's no time to force your way toward fixing it. The argument is over, but a quiet waiting and watching and weeping comes over you. Sometimes you've, you've just got to stay by the tomb of confusion and hurt a little while longer. Nothing more to say, but maybe in a while you peer in again to that tomb just for one more look at it. Or how about a cause that you believe in and that has life and death consequences for people you care about. You're watching people die in prison from COVID-19 at an alarming rate, and there's no resolution on the matter, but the evidence is clear to you. You keep standing there, coming back there, weeping and waiting there. It's like you don't have a choice. I know some people in this room who felt that way about that issue this year. And Mary bent over to look in the tomb again. She and the disciples had already used their eyes and their hands and their feet to assess the evidence there. The evidence had proven to all of them that the body had been taken. But Mary's eyes this time saw something different. There were angels now. Praise God. There were angels dressed in white sitting where the body had been lying. One at the head and one at the feet. And the placement feels important to me. They hadn't just shown up as if they were here just to announce some message. They'd been here, it seems, intentionally placed to comfort Christ while he was laying there dead in the tomb. I was reminded of the passages where Jesus is in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry and how in the hour of loneliness and isolation, angels attended to him. Here again at the end, angels had attended to Jesus in his death. He had not been alone. And they were here still. Were they there the whole time and Mary and Peter and the Beloved just couldn't see them? Had they just returned? Why had they returned? And why were they still in position to accompany a dead Jesus if that Jesus was no longer there? Those are all open questions. Mary interacts strangely, I think, 
with these angelic figures. They ask her why she's weeping, and she doesn't say, I'll tell you why I'm weeping if you tell me how you just appeared here. She doesn't freak out that there are angelic figures in the tomb. She doesn't even ask them for divine help. Instead, she repeats the theme that has engrossed her mind. She says the line she said to the other disciples, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they put him. She's still caught in the narrative of defeat, even though the evidence is starting to shift. It's not her that brought this about. It's something else, other forces that are bringing about this, this new insight. She's not ready for it yet. But as she stood there, weeping and peering, now talking with angels, she could feel someone coming up behind her. She turned quickly as one would if felt trapped between a tomb of angels and a stranger. She turned quickly, and a man said to her, Ma'am, why are you crying? It was Jesus. He was super close, but she could not recognize him. His resurrected body must have been so sufficiently different that there wasn't immediate recall. And Mary, still very much one-tracked about her concern, said, Gardener, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will t I'll go and take him away. And then Jesus said, Mary. It might be the strongest single word in, in the whole Bible. Everything changed. She said, Rabuni, back, my teacher. Only then, when she heard his voice call her name, was Mary's understanding immediately transformed. Nobody had taken him away. She'd never say that broken record line again. She received new instructions from Jesus about how he was in the middle of his ascension process, moving from death through resurrection to the right hand of God. She received the news and a mandate to go and tell the disciples that Jesus Christ had risen in a new body and was heading in the direction of God and not heading there to rest eternally, but rather heading there to be a conduit of intervention and advocacy for you and me and the entire world. He was going there so he could show up at the Newark airport in 2009 and everywhere else we might linger in the future. Friends, hear the good news this morning. Christ Jesus appears to those who linger at tombs well past the point that feels comfortable. Our God shows up for those who wait and watch and weep. So friends, this morning I ask you to prepare yourself for lingering, for waiting and watching and weeping at the tombs of this world. For many of you, this is a call to what I've already seen you do in so many moments over the course of your lives. I've known you long enough now to have seen these tombside moments. I've watched so many of you face hurdles in your lives and in the lives of the people you loved. I've watched you stay true, and I've watched God shift situations from mourning into dancing right in front of you. Assume that posture again, disciples. Assume it. There are so many challenges to this way of being, I think. Lingering doesn't make the news. The speed of information about grief-filled global and national situations that influence us each day seems to keep us in foot races to tombs, where we glimpse the evidence, but where we don't stay for very long. We move from one crisis to another, one breaking news story to the next, and don't linger long enough to be anything more than just passive consumers touched for a moment by horrible things. But what if lingering is the very thing that allows us to see the mysterious and wonderful ways that the resurrected Christ and angels from on high are breaking into this world? What if this is what it takes to see and experience the power of the resurrected, now ascended Christ? Is there a tomb near you this Easter, friends? Should you linger there a little longer or return to it? Are there crosses that you should stare at? Where are the places where you feel confident that a God who intervenes should intervene and will intervene Stay there. Keep watch and pray and wait 
for Christ to intervene. At the tomb, at the tomb is where Mary first saw the light. In the tomb of a probably 727 or whatever it was at Newark Airport, that's where I first saw the light. Let's not rush by tombs. If we rushed by on Easter morn, all we'd have seen was a stolen body. Wait, watch, weep. Participate in Christ resurrected. Amen. Thanks be to God.